Hello and welcome to the Proskauer Brief, hot topics in labor and employment law. I'm Steve Hurd, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Pat Lamparello. Today, we're going to discuss reductions in force. So let's get started. Pat, what have been the recent trends in reductions in force, and what are the main reasons employers are engaging in reductions in force? So there has been a trend recently of employers in certain industries downsizing their workforce. And there are a number of reasons employers have cited to us as reasons for going through these reductions in force, including automation of jobs or other technological developments, cost reductions, such as meeting projection goals, investor preferences, employee redistribution, such as making room for new talent, and some of our international clients have mentioned to us Brexit as a reason for uh, downsizing. Regarding trends on what we see, we see employers offering severance and outplacement services, as you probably would expect, and there's also the required notice period, which we'll touch on in a little bit. Now, Steve, what factors should be identified when contemplating a potential reduction in force? Well, certainly how many employees are being separated and what the demographics and ages of those individuals are. You should evaluate whether there's going to be any disparate impact being created by the selections. We'll discuss in a little bit the decisional unit and what federal and local warrant implications may arise from a reduction in force. Employers should also consider their existing policies, whether it be severance or notice or other policies that may come into play, and certainly sensitive issues such as employees on leave or employees who who have made prior complaints in the past. And then finally, employers should determine whether they want to have a group termination program. Pat, why don't you explain what a group termination program is? Of course, Steve. A program exists when an employer offers additional consideration for the signing of a waiver pursuant to an employment termination to two or more employees. Now, I mentioned earlier the decisional unit and its significance. What is a decisional unit? Yeah, so you're right, Steve. This is pretty significant because this probably is the area where most questions come up when conducting a RIF. A decisional unit is that portion of the employer's organizational structure from which the employer selected the impacted employees for the employment termination program. When considering the appropriate decisional unit, employers should consider organizational structure and the decision-making process. In other words, who is making the actual decision? What is the pool of employees being considered? Now, Steve, what are some of the best practices an employer should engage in when deciding on whether to carry out a RIF? Well, once the selection criteria are created uh, as to what factors will go into selecting individuals for the RIF, there should be a contemporaneous document as to the reasons for those criteria. In the future, the employer will want to be able to show why certain individuals were selected. Additionally, the selection criteria should be reviewed to make sure there are legitimate reasons for laying people off and that they're being applied consistently. And then finally, employers should perform a statistical analysis of the decisional units and the other subgroups to determine if any disparate impact on a particular group is being created. Now, we also mentioned WARN Acts, both federal and local. Pat, what are the WARN Acts, and how can an employer ensure compliance with them? Yeah, of course, Steve. So the WARN Act is the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, and this requires advance notice to employees and to certain government officials in the event of a plant closing or a mass layoff affecting the requisite number of employees. And there are differences between federal and state WARN Acts with respect to items such as the number of employees that have to be affected, 
or with respect to the number of days of notice that an employer has to give to the affected workforce. And what are the penalties for violating the WARN Acts? Sure, Steve. So employers could be liable for back pay, benefits, or a fine for each day that they fail to notify the appropriate government agency. Steve, now how about ERISA? When a program is an ERISA plan for the purposes of a RIF analysis, are there any significant differences that an employer should be aware of? So a severance pay arrangement is covered by ERISA only if it constitutes a plan, fund, or program established or maintained by an employer. If a written severance plan is operated in compliance with ERISA, it is usually strong evidence of ERISA coverage. If a program qualifies as an ERISA plan, what are the corresponding procedural and substantive requirements? <laughs> well, there are a lot of them. There certainly needs to be a formal plan document. There are also annual reporting requirements if there's at least 100 participants. And there's many other reporting and disclosure requirements. A summary plan description needs to be distributed to the participants. And anytime there are any changes made to the plan, a summary of material modification must be issued to the participants. You also must have a claims and appeal procedure. I suggest employers consult with an ERISA lawyer in creating, evaluating, and operating these plans as they are very complicated and detailed and can present many pitfalls. Now, moving on, Pat, are there any practical alternatives an employer can consider to a reduction in force? Actually, Steve, yes, there are. The one that is most common that we see is a voluntary resignation incentive program. But there are others that an employer might want to consider. Now, Steve, with respect to the RIF documents, what are some of the key considerations when an employer drafts the documents for a reduction in force? Well, any release of claims must be supported by additional consideration and also must have specific references to the statutes that are being released. There should be an explicit carve-out to allow for participation in agency proceedings like the EEOC or a local agency. And depending on the circumstances, you may want to include other obligations like confidentiality or non-disparagement. Employers should also note the specific requirements for an enforceable release for the individuals who are over age 40 and may want different forms for employees over and under 40. And then, of course, state law requirements should be addressed. For example, California has specific waiver language that must be used, and New Jersey has a 21-day consideration period even outside of the age context. Again, consulting an employment lawyer is your safest bet. Well, that is all of our time. Thank you for joining us today on the Proskauer Brief. Stay tuned for more hot topics in labor and employment law, and be sure to follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play.